history of Jesus in chronological order and we find ourselves in Luke chapter 17 and we're going to turn to a couple of other places to, uh, just to read some scriptures and set kind of a foundation for what we're going to tear into today and um, God says it's so much better than I do we might as well just read the account right in the in the passage so let's uh, now you're there everybody there Luke chapter 17 we're going to pick things up in uh, Let's see, I'm in 18. That's going to be rough. So we'll pick it up in verse 20. But before we do, turn all the way to the first book of the Bible, and that's the book of Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 19. And we'll start our reading there. Genesis chapter 19, verse 12. And then the men, that is angels, said to Lot, as, as the destruction of Sodom is, is nearing, Have you anyone else here, son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you might have in this city, take them out of this place, for we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And so Lot went out and he spoke to his sons-in-laws who had married his daughters and said, Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law he seemed to be joking. And when the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, and the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And so it came to pass, when they had brought them outside, that he said, the angel said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. And then Lot said to them, Please know, my lords, indeed now your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. See now, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one, and my soul shall live? And he said to him, See, I have favored you concerning this thing, and that you have not overthrown this city for which you have spoken. Hurry there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. And therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. And the sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zoar, and then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. And so he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. Luke chapter 17, verse 20. Now when Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation. Nor will they say, See here or see there, for be, indeed the kingdom of God is with you or among you. And then he said to the disciples, The days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and will not see it. And they will say to you, Look here or look there, 
Do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. And likewise it was also in the days of Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on that day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And in that day he who is on the rooftop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. One final scripture we want to read. Last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. Jesus writing to the seven churches. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. You've tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove the lampstand, your lampstand, from its place unless you repent. Back to Luke chapter 17. And let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. But we never want to approach it or read it or study it independent of you in any way. We never want it to be just a mental exercise. So we ask that as your Holy Spirit is with us here today, that we would be able just to commune with you richly as we study your word. Lord, thank you for the relationship with you that you've made possible through your Son. We're grateful for it, Lord. And we thank you in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The Bible teaches that man's long and current history of rebellion against God is one day going to come to an end. It will not go on indefinitely, but that one day God will rise up and make a stand against the wickedness of man, the sin, the rebellion of man, judge it, and bring it to an end. And that worldwide judgment that's referred to in the Bible is a seven-year judgment known as the Great Tribulation. And prior to that judgment, the church or Christians are going to be removed from the earth because the Bible teaches that we are not appointed unto God's wrath, 
because we have ended our rebellion against God by putting our faith in His Son and because Jesus has borne the wrath that each of our sins deserved, bearing that wrath upon the cross. Paul put it this way in writing to the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Same book, chapter 5, verse 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then ultimately, this judgment is going to be brought to an end with the second coming of Jesus Christ, the establishment of the millennial reign or the thousand-year reign of Christ, which itself will wonderfully give way to a new heavens and a new earth completely untouched by sin or the consequences of sin. And that time in human history that immediately precedes the great tribulation, God's final judgment of the earth, is known as the latter times or the last days. Paul calls it that when he wrote to Timothy in his second epistle, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. Now this passage before us in Luke chapter 17, Jesus says many, many things in the passage. And I will not get into any of those things. We'll wait until uh, Matthew chapter 24 and 25 where Jesus deals with much of the same subject matter in a later date and in a more thorough fashion. But there are two things that I want to bring out of this uh, section of, of Luke for our purposes this morning. Number one, in this passage, Jesus tells us that the same sins that characterize the world at the time of two of God's greatest judgments in the Old Testament, the flood at the time of Noah and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah at the time of Lot, that what was the moral and the uh, uh, social condition of the world at that time, that those same moral and social characteristics will make up the world at large in the last days, immediately prior to his return. And then we also want to notice in verse 32 from the passage that Jesus gives us a very needed three-word exhortation telling us as Christians what will be required of us as we await the rapture of the church so that we do not get sucked into the wickedness of the world around us. And that exhortation, that three-word exhortation is remember Lot's wife. Now first we want to notice what will be the social and moral condition of the world in the last days. And Jesus references the world in the time of Noah. And we don't have to guess what the condition of the world was at the time of Noah. All we have to do is just leaf back far enough in our Bible to the book of Genesis and we're able to read it there. The time of Noah was a time uh, of great wickedness in the world. It was a time of widespread 
sexual immorality. It was a time of widespread, unnatural sexual practices. It was a time of very strong demonic influence and involvement in the sexual practices of mankind. It was a time in which violence in the world had become very, very widespread, very, very uh, commonplace. It was a time when man was giving himself to evil imaginations continually. In other words, the artists of the world, the men and women who think in those terms, they were advancing what was evil from the human heart and from the human mind and not and, and giving form to these things, making it the the thing that the population in general spent most of their time thinking about rather than what is good and noble and virtuous in, in mankind given there by God because we're a creation of the Lord created in His image. And I think that that represents so much of how the greatest artistic minds are so often employed today. I don't know if you could win an Academy Award today by putting a movie together that brings out something that explores the noble in the human heart, that stirs courage in the human heart, a concern for the fellow man in the human heart, a desire to be good and to be great in being good. I don't know that you get awards for that anymore. It seems that the wards are reserved and the pats on the back are reserved for the men and women who are able to plumb the darkness of the human heart, the perversity, the wickedness of the human heart, and then put it on the screen for billions of dollars then to be spent in watching it. To say nothing of what is put to music and what is put on the stage in theater and on and on it goes. And it seems that we live in a time where the finest minds and the finest gifts in this direction are given to this continual evil imaginations continually and then having it be put on the wickedness of their hearts and minds then be sown among the earth as a whole. It was a time in Noah's time when the standard of right and wrong had been virtually wiped out to the point that what would normally be called right was called wrong and what would normally be called wrong was called right. And we ask ourselves as, as we look at this whole thing, as we can look in the Bible and see what was the condition of the world at the time of Noah, and we look at Jesus' assessment of that time, and He doesn't make any mention of it at all. He ought, he can, how he condemns the generation is he condemns them for their eating, their drinking, their marrying, their giving in marriage. And you say, what about all the other stuff? When G Jesus is talking to the disciples, he is talking to Jewish disciples who he knew already had a very strong base of knowledge in understanding what the particular sins and wickednesses were of Noah in the time of Noah, not of Noah, but of the people at the time uh, of Noah. And when Jesus references the eating, the drinking, the marrying, the giving in marriage until judgment comes concerning that generation, the point that he is making is that in that time people went on about their daily lives in this context of terrible wickedness 
acting as if everything was okay about this. It was just business as usual. One day after a time, there was, as if there was no God that was watching this, there was no Creator of the heavens and the earth, there was no God to judge them, and ignoring all of the warnings of Noah. And it would appear that in Jesus' mind, as, as He thinks about the people living in that time, what was the most astonishing to Him concerning those times of Noah was not simply the terrible wickedness, but that people could live in the midst of the sin and the wickedness going on all around them and think that God would not one day judge it. The response in Jesus' mind would have been for a, a person even with any kind of conscience that wasn't seared would be repentance. It would be so, the wearing of sackcloth. It would be the putting on of and, and adorning myself in ashes. And instead the reaction of mankind was business as usual, eating, what's for dinner tonight, when are we going to go out to eat again, what, what are we going to drink, uh, who's going to get married next, and that was kind of the big event in the culture we would translate it into, when's the next vacation coming, what's the next big item we're going to buy for ourselves, What's the next big event in, in our life? And, and so these were the things that they were giving themselves to while they live in the midst of, of great wickedness. And it's a perfect description of our world today. And Jesus declares that the moral condition of the world in the last days will be one of wickedness. And that the world's reaction to that wickedness will be complete indifference. Their reaction will be worldwide a collective yawn to that wickedness. But the flood came, and Jesus warns that when the world becomes like this again, that his judgment is very, very near. God would be unjust if he judged these things in the Old Testament times and did not then judge those things as they are practiced in the world today. And one thing God is not, is He is not unjust. In verses 28 and 29, Jesus also references the time of, of Lot, Abraham's nephew, and God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah at that time. And again, all we have to do to understand the, the condition of the world at that time is to simply go back to the book of Genesis and read about it. And the moral condition of Sodom at the time of Lot was a time when the sin of homosexuality had become very, very widespread in practice and very, very uh, widely accepted as an acceptable behavior. And so Jesus again makes note of the fact and he concerning the times of the world and the condition of the world at the time of Lot, he references their eating, their drinking, their buying, their selling, their marrying, their giving in marriage until judgment came. And again, the point that Jesus is making is that they just went on living their lives in the context of all of this sexual immorality, all of the wickedness, all of the rebellion, as if everything was okay about this. It was just business as usual, again, as if no God was watching all of this, no God to be concerned about, no God who was going to judge it, and they felt free to ignore the warnings of God's Word. No repentance, no fear of God, 
no sackcloth, no ashes, just indifference at best and endorsement at worst. And Jesus declares that this will be the moral condition of the world in the last days. And the world's reaction to it will be indifference and endorsement. And we see it all around us today. And so that is the social and the moral condition of the world that we will be living in as Christians in the last days. Then notice in verse 32, Jesus' three-word warning, His three-word exhortation to us as Christians concerning what we must do in order to keep from being sucked into either the great wickedness of the world that we live in or to be sucked into an attitude of indifference toward that wickedness. And his warning is a three-word warning. Remember Lot's wife. We find ourselves surrounded by the same sins and the same perversion and the same wickedness and the same rebellion today. And, as, and, and we do, and as we find ourselves surrounded by it, we can find ourselves asking ourselves, what can I do as a Christian to resist the strong current of this culture toward ungodliness so that I don't get swept away by it myself? And Jesus answers that question here. Now there's something about those three words, remember Lot's wife. There's something about that that Jesus, number one, He wants every one of us to be familiar with the facts of her life. Every Christian needs to know what Lot's wife was about, the technical details related to her life. But the very mention of Lot's wife to a Christian, at least Jesus' intent for our life, is that it would not only pull up in the Rolodex a technical knowledge of what happened into our life, but that we would immediately know and remember the single great lesson attached to her life, the single great warning that her life is intended to give to us as Christians living in an hour in human history like we're living in. Now, what happened to Lot's wife? Well, she and her husband Lot and their two daughters and their sons-in-laws, they were living in the midst of all of the wickedness of, of Sodom. And because the wickedness of, of Sodom was an affront to Lot, Peter says it was a torment to his righteous uh, soul. The Lord sent angels to Sodom to warn them of the judgment that was coming and that he was going to pour out judgment on Sodom and to remove them prior to doing so. And the morning of the destruction of Sodom, the angels had to almost forcibly pull them out of the city instructing them, escape for your life, do not look behind you nor stay anywhere in the plain, escape to the mountains lest you be destroyed. And as they were fleeing the city, as the sun began to rise, as the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot's wife disobeyed God's command not to look back. And she looked back and she was turned into a pillar of of salt. That's the story. That's the technical information surrounding that event in her life. But what is the lesson to be learned from Lot's wife? 
I remember very vividly my first contact with Lot's wife. <laughs> the knowledge with her. I'm not that old, but I'm talking about coming into contact with the, the account. I was about nine years old. I was in the waiting room of a doctor in Napa, California, Dr. Dwight Murray Sr. And uh, I like to read a lot of things, and so I was in there, and sometimes you can wait for a doctor. And so I was waiting in there and kind of had plowed through everything that was in the room and all, and I noticed that they had these illustrated uh, Bible story books in, in the waiting room. So I picked one up, and you begin at the beginning, and it's Genesis, and it wasn't long before I saw an actual kind of uh, drawing here of uh, Lot and his wife fleeing out of Sodom. There was the one picture, the before picture, and then I turned the page, and there she is, a pillar of salt. I'll tell you, it really made quite an impact on me. I didn't understand the lesson of it, but I've never forgotten it, obviously. haven't forgotten it. And it's intended to have an impact on anyone who hears the account. Someone has said that God made her a monument of an unbelieving soul. God made her a monument of an unbelieving soul. I don't believe that. I don't believe that for a moment. And I, in fact, I think that to believe that is to miss entirely the whole point of, of her life. The fact of the matter is that Lot's wife did believe. Think about what she knew on the day of her destruction. Think about the things that she had heard, the things that she had seen. On the night before, she entertained angels, not unawares. She knew they were angels. She had hosted angels in her home. She had witnessed the supernatural power of those angels as they smote the lust-filled men of Sodom as they came to uh, take these angels and have their way with them uh, sexually in order to blind these men so they couldn't even find the handle to the door to get into the house. She was very well aware intellectually of Sodom's wickedness. She had witnessed it firsthand. She knew that the city was going to be destroyed. She knew all the reasons why the city was going to be destroyed. She had been warned by God that judgment was coming. She believed. She believed in God's coming judgment upon Sodom to such a degree that she had even begun to obey His command to flee the city. Her problem was not in the realm of the mind at all. She did not end up destroyed because of some lack in her theology, because of some lack in her knowledge of the nature of God. She didn't end up destroyed because of some intellectual misgiving about God's Word or because of some lack of information. Lot's wife was overcome with the judgment of Sodom because of a divided heart. And if one was to look at her and, and at her life prior to this judgment, no one could spot it outwardly concerning her life. And though no one could spot it outwardly, when her devotion for the Lord was tested, 
against her devotion for Sodom, for the things of the world. When push came to shove, the rubber hit the road, Sodom won out. And candidly, when the day of testing came, she loved Sodom more than God. And when she became a pillar of salt, all that happened is that she merely became outwardly what God knew she was already inwardly, just like Sodom. Now, one of the most things that is very interesting to me to note about her is that for all that she knows in her noggin, in her mind, all that she knows to be true up here, ultimately her heart wins out here. And I am convinced that left unattended, the heart will almost always win out over the mind. That the heart will almost always convert the mind over the long haul. Notice that to begin with, her mind is in control. She begins to flee the city. But her heart is somewhere else. It's in Sodom and her heart ends up winning. And when a person merely has a mind for God, but it is not coupled with a heart for God. That is, their heart has been captured by some love for sin or some love for worldliness, and thus their heart and their mind are not in agreement. Almost always, almost inevitably, the heart has a way of winning out. You picture a balance in your mind, a scale of weight on either side in your mind. And on the one side of the scale, our minds can contain a mountain of information. She had a mountain of information about God. She had a mountain of personal experience with God. You take what she knew about God, what was inside of her head, you put it on one side of the scale, and it would rise up a hundred miles into the sky. She had tons of information about God. And you take that and, and this, all of this information and then here is a person who can have absolute convictions concerning what is right and wrong. They can believe in them unbudgingly and, and be willing to defend those things publicly and earnestly. And then the heart sits over here and it has just one little flaw in it. Just one thing where it looks at the world out there that we live in and it says, I want that. And given enough time, left unattended, that one little I want that will undo all of the mountains of information on the other side of that scale. It will somehow win over the mind. It is amazing what obstacles the mind will work itself through if the heart is somewhere else in order to get them to align with its desires. It is amazing what the heart can convince the mind to justify. How easy it can get the mind to sacrifice its integrity in the face of all that is biblical, all that is rational, all that is sane. The power of a divided heart is frightening. 
And this kind of thing is repeated thousands of times all over the world every single day. Where the husband says to the wife, or the wife says to the husband, or the parent says to the child, or the child says to the parent, or the friend says to the friend, or the man or the woman says to the pastor, I know that what I am about to do is completely wrong. I know it is unbiblical. I know that God is right in condemning in His Word what I am about to do. I know that it will probably end in disaster. But I'm going to go and do it anyway. The Bible is filled with examples of the power of, of an undivided heart to take over everything else, a, a divided heart to overtake everything else in a life. You think about, in the Old Testament, I think about Pharaoh with Moses. And so often after God had poured out these ten plagues upon the nation in order to produce the release of His people from the bondage of Egypt, and as God would pour this great plague out upon Egypt, there would be that recognition that would come to the mind of Pharaoh and he would, he would realize that at a moment in time, recognizing intellectually that to continue to attempt to resist the Lord was insane. It's destroying everything around us. And he would, for that moment of, of intellectual clarity, he would speak to Moses and say, all right, you can go, you can leave, get out of here. But then within a few hours' time, his heart would retake charge of his mind and once again he would refuse to release them. And you look, at, you look at Pharaoh and you say, is the man insane? Is he crazy? Is he going to wait till there's a complete destruction of his land? Why in the world would he make this right decision and come back from it over and over and over again? I think about King Saul and his persecution of, of David. And so often as he would persecute David and there would come that recognition as God would foil his attempts to kill David and he would even cry out to David, David, my son, you will surely be the king. You're going to be the king. God has made you the king. That is a sure thing in the future. And then just a few hours later, he's trying to kill David again. And his mind understood clearly when strongly confronted with the facts, but again given enough time, his heart out of harmony with his mind ultimately won out. Think of Balaam in the Old Testament. He knew what was right in his mind. He had so much knowledge of God and the Bible and all of these things, but he had one little I want that in this world. And his little I want that was money. It was riches. And it ended up overruling everything in his life, all that he knew about God, and it ended up destroying him. God knowing the danger of all of this, lamented concerning the children of Israel, and he said, These people draw near, near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And why did God lament this disconnect between the heart in the mind because he knows it always ends in disaster 
And this is why the Holy Spirit wrote to the author of the book of Proverbs, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the issues of life. And the word keep means to guard. And we are to guard our hearts from anything, any person, place, or thing that would want to rise up in our lives and attempt to become more important to us than our personal relationship with Jesus. Well, if I were sitting here this morning with a divided heart, I have the advantage of being a first partaker of the sermon long before it's delivered, so I can get things cleaned up prior. But if I was sitting here and my heart was divided in the light of Jesus' word here, I wouldn't want the sermon to end until someone told me, how in the world can I correct that condition in my life, given its danger to me and so many around me? And I don't think that you can find a better place to discover the solution to a divided heart than from the passage we read there in Revelation chapter 2. And I'd like you to turn back to that because I'll refer to it a couple of times as we close here now. It is interesting that Jesus wrote to the church at Ephesus in the writing of his seven letters to the seven churches. And when he writes to the church at Ephesus, he writes in this same vein of the issue of the heart. And Jesus speaks to the church at Ephesus and, and declares to them that for all of the good things that they were doing, that all of those things are going to be undone by a fault in their heart unless that fault gets changed. I mean, you read about this church and, and what it's doing and the impact that it's having, the characteristics of it. Jesus said, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. You've tested those who say they're apostles and are not. You have found them liars. You have persevered. You have patience. You have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. You read a description like that of a local church and what you want to do is, can I have their website? Can you tell me what the address is? I think I'd like to go there. It's a tremendous church. And yet for all of that strength, all of that on the one side of the scale, Jesus looks at it and says, I see a flaw that would be viewed by the average person in the world and maybe even the average Christian in the body of Christ as being nothing, so small, so insignificant in the light of the strength of all of these other things. But I know that because it's a heart issue, it will be the undoing of all of that. And Jesus speaks to the church of Ephesus and declares that if this heart issue is not changed, he said, I will take my lampstand from your midst. And the lampstand represented his presence. He was saying, I will remove the fullness of my presence from your church. And no church can hope to survive with that presence removed. Not in this world. But what is true of a church is also true of an individual Christian. Now, Jesus rebukes them, and he rebukes them there in, 
where he says, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. And he warns them, if they don't return to a heart of first love toward him, that he will again remove the fullness of his presence. So whatever this first love is, it's super important. What is this first love? It's the love that we had at the first when we came to know the Lord. It's called espousal love, engagement love, going together love. The kind of love that you have for a person when in those early days and weeks and months and where you're writing their name all over everything. You can't stop thinking about them. All you can think about is how much you love them. The next way you're going to be able to express your love toward them. That's what the first love was, where a person is just consumed with their love for another person. And spiritually, it refers to the love that a person has for the Lord when they first come to know the Lord. In the church of Ephesus, they had drifted from this. But he couples with his rebuke to this church at Ephesus three very practical pieces of of instruction on how to get out of this very dangerous condition that their heart was in. And his counsel is, is encapsulated in very, three very simple words which are helpful for memory. The, the first word is remember. The second word is repent. And the third word is return. Return to your first works. And he tells them the first thing they needed to do was to repent from where they had fallen. He says, he tells them to think back, to remember back to the time early in their Christian life. And if they could think back in early in their Christian life and their love for Christ was greater then than it is now, he said, then we've fallen from our first love. When it was all about Christ and a relationship with Christ, that was everything. That's what their Christianity was And Jesus just simply comes to them and says, if the love that you have for me now is less than that, then you need to remember that. You need to face that as a fact about your life. Acknowledge the condition. Acknowledge the sin. I have fallen from something very high and lofty and important. Then the second thing he said that they were to do was to repent. The repent means to have a change of mind about the direction I'm going, where a person looks and says, wait a second, I don't love God half as much as I used to love Him. And I don't like that about my life. And I don't like the direction that that's taking me in life. So I'm going to have a change of mind about what I, where I'm going in life and the direction that I'm going in life. And I'm going to make a U-turn right now. And I'm going to go back to that kind of a relationship with Christ. And then the third thing that Jesus said was to return and to do their first works. This is very, very practical. He said, go back and do the same things that you did when your relationship with God was marked by first love. Example of that might be where I need to remember the place that the Word of God had in my life at a time, the time when I loved Him that way. What was my devotional life like at that time? 
when, when it wasn't just a time that was blocked out, and I read this so much here, but you'd take and you'd start to read, and you couldn't stop reading, and you'd read whole books of the Bible at a time, multiple books of the Bible at, at the time. When you'd look at the Bible, and every decision in life was immediately, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? That is what I want my de- decision to be in this situation. And to remember what kind of a place that the Bible had in my life, and then to return to that. What place did prayer have in my life back then? And then to return to that. What place did church attendance have in my life back in those days when I loved Him that way? And then to return to that. Who were my friends? Who were my peers? Who were my influencers in life when I loved God like that back then? And to return to those kind of friends and those kind of influencers. How did I spend my time back then? And then to return to that. What was my standard for right and wrong and what I would put before my eyes or I would put into my ears and then to go back to that? And so forth as we could lay out example after example. And what I will discover, Jesus says, when I do that is that the first love relationship that I once had with the Lord is right there where I left it. It will all come back to me with just a remembrance, a repenting, and a returning to the first works. As Christians in this room this morning, God has called us to live for Him at a very, very exciting time in human history. But it is also a very dangerous time spiritually in human history. And Jesus is saying that not any old Christian or any old Christian heart is going to navigate the wickedness that will mark the world in the last days very well. It will require a wholehearted commitment to God or we will become absorbed by the sin of the culture around us. And our life example will be to our generation not how to live for Christ but how not to live for Him and the consequences of it. I don't think that anything else is going to do the hour in which God has called us to live for Him than to live with a wholehearted commitment to Him. I think that anything else guarantees that one day when the commitment is tested that we will become a casualty just like Lot's wife did. Jesus' command to us 2,000 years ago is just as contemporary today as it was then. When he was asked, what is the single greatest commandment in all the law and the prophets? And he responded, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and all of your strength. And that it is fascinating that he begins the list by speaking of the heart.
it testifies to the dangerous power of a divided heart and the life of a child of God. It's a good warning. I like it. I like it when the Holy Spirit brings to my remembrance as is necessary. Remember Lot's wife. I'm glad I understand the technical knowledge of the the data and the details and the whole thing around what happened in the event. But I'm thankful to know what the great lesson of her life is spiritually so that God can use it to keep me separated from being drawn into that world and having the same end that she did. If you sit here today and you have never ever made Jesus your Savior, judgment is coming to this world. And who can doubt today that the world deserves it? I'm glad I I didn't pastor 50 years ago. 50 years ago, the United States of America had kind of a moral base that was still very much dominated by the Bible and a sense of right and wrong and all these things. And I guess they would have to spend 20 minutes of their sermon maybe declaring to people about uh, the fact that judgment is coming and be ready for it and all of these kinds of things and what the condition of the world will be in the last days and maybe pull types and shadows to see how it's not quite this way today, but, you know, it might be someday and so be ready. You don't have to waste any time doing that today. You just have to watch the news on television. You just have to pick up a newspaper. You just have to walk around this city or any city you want to in the United States and the world. And to realize if I have spiritual eyes that are dominated by the Word of God, dominated by the standard of heaven, to realize how far away from God this world is. And even with the great economic crisis that's going on in the world, no humility... No brokenness to the pride. No repentance. No sackcloth. No ashes. All you need is more money. And an unwillingness to recognize the moral things, the social things, the ungodly things that have gotten us to this place in this area on planet earth and in every other area on planet earth. Judgment is coming. And it will be righteous when it comes. And you can't answer for the world. I can't answer for the world. You can answer for you. And what you need to make sure is that before that judgment comes, that you are on the right side of God. And the way that you get on the right side of God is by putting your faith in His Son, the Savior, that He has sent into the world to provide us with the forgiveness of sins and then a personal relationship with Him. And there are going to be men and women up in front immediately after the service. They're going to have a badge on that says prayer, so you can identify them easily. And they'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God today. It's all there for the asking. It's all there for the receiving. Come out from among what is set aside for a sure judgment. Come into God's salvation today. Let's stand together and pray.